welcome to CityWare Selector podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. I'm Margarita Gerakosian, news editor, and joining me today is Tejos Neos, managing partner at LGT Capital Partners and a member of PRI board. Tejos, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Margarita. Real pleasure to be here. Uh, so you are a member of the PRI board, and I think it's very interesting to find out a bit more about how the priorities of the organization changed over the last couple of years, because from my memory, you've been with PRI for at least three years, and uh, the kind of like the organization is dynamic and is focusing on different things every year. So in terms of the changes, what's the most striking one from your perspective, let's say? I think there is a there is a broader change happening in the world of ESG and sustainable investing, and that is also reflected in what is going on in the PRI. For the last 15 years, you can say that we have been focusing on, on ESG. The world has moved from a, I would say, process orientation mm -hmm. towards a more outcome orientation. And in those 15 years, I think we achieved a lot in ESG. A lot of people are nowadays looking at their investments and what is the ESG or sustainability profile of their investments. A lot of organizations have obviously joined the PRI. It's become a very large organization, a very successful organization. But at the same time, if we look at the state of affairs of people and planets, and if we look at the environmental and social issues that we are facing, we do have to acknowledge that whatever we have done is clearly not good enough. If we look at the Paris Agreement, if we look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda 2030, we are basically behind on all metrics. And mm -hmm. that's where the move from a focus on processes, a focus on resources, towards a focus on very real world outcomes is a very important move and we're very much into that move and mm -hmm. that's also for the PRI a very important topic where if you look at their strategy which is which is basically encapsulated in what they call their blueprint uh, there is this topic of enabling real world impact aligned with the SDGs and that mm -hmm. is where a lot of activity is 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 happening around on the other hand mm -hmm. the PRI that's, I'd say, from, from a content and a strategy perspective, a very important one. The PRI as an organization has grown tremendously. Um, even in the last mm -hmm. three years, the number of members has, 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 has doubled. Um, it's now an organization that has members that control over 100 trillion US dollars. The number of staff has increased, the offices. So as an organization, it is also dealing with, with growth. And so far, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm pleased to say that the PRI is in very good shape, mm -hmm. uh, both organizationally, it has dealt with, uh, it has dealt well with the, um, with the COVID crisis and with working from home and not being able to, to reach out in person anymore to signatories, not being able to hold um, co co conferences with, with people attending, all moving everything to virtual. Um, in terms of its its its, its management structure, um, so I have to say the PRI is in is in good shape, and I think executing well on their strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, given that uh, PRI is seeing the increase in numbers uh, of members, let's say, and then as well the tasks that are had of the organization are quite big as well. Do you think we are also going to see a bit more? 
requirements, let's say, and increase in requirements from signatories? And if yes, where those are likely to emerge, let's say? Exactly. So a big topic currently, and also in 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 in, in the course of the, the next the next six months, are these minimum requirements. And as you might have seen for the first time this year, fairly, I mean, fairly recently, the PRI has asked a number of members to leave because they mm -hmm. did not meet these minimum requirements. As the world of ESG evolves, it is indeed important to make sure that those minimum requirements also evolve with um, the latest ESG practice. On the other hand, it is also very important from my perspective that the PRI remains this big tent, as we refer to it in the PRI. The PRI is there to help everyone on their ESG journey, from people who know very little about ESG to people who have been involved in ESG for over 20 years. And so from that perspective, those minimum requirements cannot be so harsh or cannot set the bar so high that it would prevent people who really want to make a difference on ESG and people who want to join this ESG journey, it shouldn't prevent them from basically joining the PRI. So what, I mean, yeah, the requirements so far have been, I mean, minimum requirements. I, I would agree mm -hmm. they're fairly basic. The plan is to expand them particularly when it comes to the responsible investment policy of members. So mm -hmm. far, it required a, um, I mean, yeah, the, the policy, uh, the ESG policies to cover at least half of the AUM of members. Now that will likely go to, to, to over 90% of AUM. So the policy will need to be publicly available. Um, it will also have to incorporate all asset classes where there is at least... If, if, if an investor has $10 billion or more in an asset class, they will need to report on that, even mm -hmm. if that $10 billion is a small percentage of the total asset. So in the past, they could, they could not um, report, mm -hmm. they could choose not to report. So there are a number of, of elements, also including an internal verification and a sign-off of the data that is provided to the PRI. So a bit more scrutiny from with from the the signatories from within the signatories organization to make sure that whatever the signatory provides to the PRI is indeed reflecting the reality at that signatory, and I think this is a step up from where we were, mm -hmm. but it is at the same time still reasonable. It is not. I mean, these are not requirements that will prevent people from joining the PRI. I would hope, and we will now also see what members say about these. Um, increased requirements. There is a consultation going on, and mm -hmm. obviously within the board, we we I mean we'll take those uh, the feedback very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that PRI is very closely tuned to all the changes in terms of regulations uh, that are maybe European-wide regulations. Let's say there is a big. Uh, emphasis on climate change in many places, let's say. So in terms of climate uh, disclosures, I guess it's the first kind of like step. Do you think there will be an increase in these kind of, kind of data inputs that um, members of PRI will have to provide a bit more than in the past, let's say? Yes, I mean, already, um, already this year, uh, there were a number of questions pertaining to 
to TCFD, mm-hmm. uh, so the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, that have become um, that that the basically members were asked to to reply to that, and that will clearly um, be part of the revision of the reporting and assessment framework. So if you think about the big revisions within the PRI, mm-hmm. you touched upon the minimum standards. So the minimum requirements. So that is one part. The second is really um, reporting and, and, and assessment. And there indeed uh, climate and in general outcomes, as we discussed before, will become a more important part of those reporting and, 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 and assessment frameworks. The PRI is indeed, uh, going back now to what you asked in the beginning, very much involved in also the direction of the regulation. And that is through through Nathan, Nathan Fabian, who is uh, the chief responsible investment officer um, at the PRI, who also plays a very important role within the EU and within the implementation of the sustainable finance initiative within the EU and where, I mean, obviously the taxonomy plays a very important role. So the PRI can play an important role to a certain extent in trying to influence the policy in the right way for the investment management community. And on the other hand, um, can play a very important role in informing and educating its members as the PRI is very much at, um, I mean, sitting at the table when a lot of the regulation coming out of the EU is being decided upon. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, within PRI uh, members group, you have also working groups that are, for example, stress testing uh, the alignment uh, with the taxonomy uh, that is coming, I think, at the end of next year. So uh, in terms of those working groups, well, uh, what kind of aspects are they looking at? And um, maybe if you could share any of the insights or maybe some results that um, kind of resulted from those interactions. I mean, on the working groups, I mean, the PRI has a large number of working groups. Mm-hmm. So I can I can probably talk best about the one that um, I'm chairing. Mm-hmm. So I am chairing about there is a difference between working groups and advisory committees, but that gets us into, I guess, um, technicalities that are not so interesting. Um, I'm chairing an advisory committee pertaining to the uh, to the SDGs, to the Sustainable mm-hmm. Development Goals. So um, and there you typically have a group of asset owners and investment managers and, 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 and service um, I mean, consultants who are together with the relevant PRI staff working on a topic and advising the PRI board on that topic. And in, in my case, I mean, the, the SDGs have been a topic where I've been uh, fairly vocal within the board. And mm-hmm. I've then also worked quite closely with the PRI executive in coming to, um, I mean, at the framework that the PRI has recently published, um, investing with SDG outcomes, where there is a, I mean, a five-step framework um, helping investors how to deal with the SDGs, because the SDGs are a very important framework but it is clearly a framework designed by by governments, by NGOs. Mm -hmm. It was not a framework designed for the investment community. From my perspective, it's a framework that is very relevant for the investment community because as responsible investors, we do need to often decide as to what is good, what is bad, what are the goals that we want to achieve. And the only universally agreed upon framework that provides these goals is really the sustainable development agenda with its 17 
SDGs. But for investors to think about how to incorporate that in their day-to-day -day investment activities has been a real challenge. We've seen that from some surveys that we did at LGT Capital Partners, where on the one hand, you see that investors are very convinced that the SDGs can play an important role in their investment activities, that investors have very high expectations around these SDGs. But on the other hand, when it comes to concrete actions within their investment management activities, that fairly little is currently uh, being done by both asset owners and investment managers. And that's a problem. And that's where the, um, the PRI has a role to play and where the PRI has now published its first, I'd say, flagship document around the SDGs to try to help investors in, 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 in navigating um, I mean, yeah, the world of SDGs and how to marry it with the world of, um, of investing. Mm -hmm. It's obviously very difficult to cover all 17 goals and how you can comply with them. But if you can illustrate uh, basically what is that that investment managers can do today? Because obviously, you, as you mentioned, it's very it's very beautiful concept. But how does it actually translate into real life? And what are the challenges uh, making that transition? Yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely a, a challenge, but I think it is very important. If we, within the world of finance, want to really make a difference in the world and really want to um, have, a, have a positive impact on, on outcomes, we need to start identifying how our investments are having positive or negative effects um, we need to set policies and targets what we want that to be. And then we need to try to make sure that we can shape our investment activities to reach these outcomes. And the nice thing of the, of the, of the 17 SDGs is, as you said, there are 17. Not all are extremely relevant from an investment perspective. And even amongst those that are relevant from an investment perspective, your organization could choose to focus on a subset of those because you, you, you as, a, as a board of trustees of an organization or an investment committee feel particularly strong about three or four of these SDGs, you can start focusing your positive outcomes within that group of SDGs. And obviously, very important and something that some people don't talk enough about is avoiding the negative outcomes. We've looked at the MSCI world and we've done quite some work in trying to um, make an SDG footprint of the MSCI world. And then you see that most mainstream um, equity portfolios in the end have a negative impact on most of the SDGs. And that's maybe not so surprising because if most capital in the world would have had a positive impact on the SDGs, we probably would not have, would have never come up with the SDGs in the first place. So it is very important in the, in the first instance to, to, to identify in your portfolio where your capital is negatively impacting SDGs. In the second phase, you can then try to, 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 to focus on which of the SDGs would you really try to have a positive impact on? And that can, of course, be different for each organization. 
Mm -hmm. And in terms of focusing on the negative impact, uh, are there any to go to uh, kind of templates in terms of looking at it? So how do you find out basically as an equity manager that you are actually negatively impacting uh, certain SDGs, let's say? Yeah, I mean, it is, there, there are from, from all the ESG data providers, by now there is also data available on thousands of companies and how these companies through their products and services leave either a positive footprint or a negative footprint on society. So the, the revenues of companies are scrutinized. Um, they are scrutinized in terms of the products that generate these revenues. Do these products have a positive impact on each of the 17 SDGs or do the um, revenues of these companies, of these products and services of these companies have a negative impact. And that is one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. There is, of course, there are always people who, who set very high goals on, um, on impact and impact investing. And that is, of course, fantastic. There is nothing wrong with being wanting to be a, a very high impactful investor. But I believe there are two criteria we need to keep in mind. On the one hand, you'll have high impact capital that will go very, fairly deep into these SDGs and will try to, um, I mean, have a positive impact on a number of dimensions, but that capital is typically fairly limited in, in amount. And just, I mean, yeah, the billions that is available, that are the, the billions that are available for that from your typical asset owner or your typical investment manager. While if you look at the mainstream equity or fixed income portfolio, I mean, obviously we're talking about hundreds of trillions of capital. And that's where even small changes in allocations of that capital, even small changes in which companies the capital flows to or which companies see a change in their cost of capital through supply and demand for their securities, longer term, that is a very important dimension and something that I think many people sometimes forget about. So I think you have to really play the two levers. There, there's, the, there's the high impact capital typically limited in amount, mm -hmm. but then there is the huge pool of capital that goes into mainstream equities and, and fixed income where small changes in, 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 in identifying these positive and negative outcomes and not investing in certain securities but investing in different ones can make longer term a huge, a, a huge difference. And that's also obviously what the EU taxonomy is trying to drive through, um, identifying economic activity that has a positive impact in the first instance on climate action and trying to redirect capital flows towards those um, companies that have a material positive impact on those um, on, on on those dimensions, and that's where I mean that's obviously a second a second source of it, going to be a second obvious source for, of information, whereby I mean yeah I think it's about seven thousand companies public companies will need to report on whether they are taxonomy compliant or not, and that will give at least on the initial dimension of climate change a very interesting a very interesting picture. Mm -hmm. So to put it kind of like in simple terms, if you look, for example, at two cement producing companies, right, if one of them has better practices or redirects its capital or practices towards green activities, let's say, if you stick by that 
company opposite to the one that doesn't do anything, you're already moving the needle almost as much as if you were investing in a wind turbine, let's say, per se. Yeah, I mean, we, we, always, we always separate to a certain extent the operational practices of a business. If you take a cement producer, obviously a cement producer has a significant um, ecological footprint by making cement. Mm-hmm. And then there is always the question, the product or service itself, cement, what, what, what role does that play within society? And thus, I mean, cement as a product have a positive or negative um, effect on all these different SDGs. I mean, with cement, it is one thing if you think about food, you could be a producer of healthy foods and obviously mm-hmm. make a positive contribution to good health and well-being or you could be a producer of very unhealthy foods and make a negative impact on good, good health and well-being. So these are the various dimensions indeed that you can play with and that you can try to start incorporating in your portfolio management. Mm-hmm. I think you rightly mentioned that 17 goals is great, but of course you can't just tick all of them at once, especially depending on what kind of products you're running. So even from the perspective of LGT capital management, what are the goals that are the easiest ones uh, to tackle, to track, and what are the most difficult to take into account when investing? Because obviously some concepts, again, sound good in practice, but in reality you still have a way to go till it's investable yeah no i mean there are obviously goals that are um, fairly difficult to to deal with um, especially for example goal goal 17 which pertains to partnerships for the goals that's a goal where you find very few investment opportunities also topics like um i mean yeah no poverty is not such an easy one for most investment managers to immediately have an impact on but I mean, good health and well-being is one which is clearly much easier. Let me look at um, some of the results that we had from from our own from our own survey in terms of what are the um, SDGs that most investors want to want to focus on. We 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 ask mm-hmm. them. So I mean, I mean, climate action is obviously the most mm-hmm. important topic for most people. Um, and it's also by now very investable, affordable and clean er- energy, goal number seven, clean water and sanitation, goal number six, as I mentioned, good health and well-being, goal number three, quality education, goal number four, industry, innovation and infrastructure, goal number nine. So these are some of the topics that for the investment community overall are more addressable than some of the other SDGs. Mm-hmm. For LGT Capital Partners within our own funds, we basically try to look at the overall footprint and try to minimize the negative footprint on all the goals and optimize the positive footprint on all the goals. And that's a decision that we leave very much to the, to the portfolio managers of the various funds. So we don't impose a, a goal that they need to focus on this or that SDG. It's the overall footprint that we would like them to optimize Um, in line with their investment strategy, because in the end, we are still in mainstream asset management. The -hmm. priorities are still making good returns for our clients while minimizing risks. And these frameworks need to be embedded within a a, risk and return um, mandate. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, it's a bit different for each of the portfolios. Mm -hmm. 
And um, when we are talking about the kind of like combination of 17 uh, development goals, what I can think of as well, sometimes some of them, uh, without you necessarily meaning it, uh, might be cancelling each other out or negatively impacting each other. Like, for example, you build a windmill, which is good for renewable energy, but that has an impact potentially negative impact on biodiversity. So how are you looking at those challenges within that framework? I think you just have to be honest and you have to acknowledge that you have that trade-off. I fully agree. Many asset owners and investment managers only look at the positive dimension. And I think that is, I mean, putting your head in the sand a little bit. Uh, you need to look at the positive and the negative dimension. It's, it's on many cases. Look at nuclear energy. Nuclear energy obviously has a positive impact on climate action, but has a negative impact on life on land. Mm -hmm. And that's just what it is. And every investor then needs to decide for their investment mandates, every asset owner for, um, yeah, for, for their portfolios, where it is that they want to um, be on that balance. And I wouldn't say that there is a right or wrong. There is no absolute right or wrong. You just need to decide which of those trade-offs you are willing to make as an investor. And that makes the SDGs also a very flexible framework. But mm -hmm. I fully agree, there are trades-offs, there are positives and negatives for the same company and the same product on the 17 SDGs, and you need to know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. So for those who are only starting to wrap their heads around the concept of SDGs and investing alongside those lines, um, again, what are the most comfortable starting points in your view? Because you've been looking at this subject for a while now. And secondly, maybe if you could give um, any recommendations in terms of data sources uh, available out there, that would be great as well. Yeah, I think, I think the first part is really about investors identifying and understanding the unintended outcomes of their investments and also their own operations. So really trying to, 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 to do that mapping of your investment portfolio, where do you see negative outcomes on these SDGs and how can you try to, to avoid them? I think that is a very important starting point. And that's also where most investors basically get going. They um, they call that SDG mapping. They look at their, their portfolio. They look at um, typically fairly high level and fairly um, qualitative. How do we have a positive impact on them? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they forget about the negative side, which is unfortunately typically more important for mainstream portfolios. But I think that is really the obvious starting point. And from there, thinking about setting policies and targets and, and, and moving from identifying and understanding these unintended outcomes towards um, intentional steps to shape outcomes. And I think that's where um, most investors, if most investors would get there in, I mean, yeah, in the next one to two years, that would be a, a big move forwards because we do a lot of talking about the SDGs, but in reality, there is not that much that is actively being done within investment portfolios around the SDGs. When it comes to about, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to get into I mean yeah giving giving any uh, naming any data mm -hmm. provider but by now most of the large data providers have data sets that can help investors in making um, in making these types of judgments. Mm -hmm. so this is not anymore a rare commodity 
This is something that you can that you can buy from from most of the mainstream data providers. You just uh, like we did. We did a selection process. We ended up with one of them, and I mean, yeah, we've then implemented that into our into our portfolios. Of course, the disadvantage is that we're talking now about large public listed companies. When you're active in the world of private equity, like I mean, like ourselves, which uh, private equity is the biggest part of our business, there of course you do not have these data sets available and it becomes much harder to make these types of qualifications about um, how a private equity portfolio positively or negatively impacts these 17 SDGs or in the end, the broader um, set of ESG KPIs that you would look at. Mm -hmm. it's, it's until now mainly a public markets game. It's still to a much lesser extent um, applicable to private markets, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Which begs the question, again, because uh, if you are an equity investor, you can pull out funds if you want to, but with private equity or private assets for that matter overall as a, as a big asset class, it's a long-term game. Uh, and how do you even incentivize those companies to uh, kind of like get better when they know that you can't just uh, pull the money out? You know, I think the, 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 the good thing about private equity is that private equity is, is, is basically much better suited than public equities to drive change in companies. And that change obviously can also be from a sustainability or, or ESG perspective. Private equity managers typically buy a majority stake within a company. So they control the board and they control the strategy and they control what the company does. So from a theoretical perspective, private equity is ideally placed to, to, to work on sustainability topics. Secondly, the providers of capital to private equity, I mean, mainly the biggest group are our pension funds. Pension funds are also very much aligned behind this sustainability agenda. So many factors are really aligned behind private equity playing a very important role. And what we see within our large universe of private equity managers, they do indeed take they do indeed take ESG and sustainability very serious. There are um, by now only few managers who refuse to do anything on ESG. Mm -hmm. It is now fairly mainstream for private equity managers to have ESG policies and ESG practices in place. So they are also working on these on these topics. But in terms of trying to measure. Their, um, their, 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 their impact, that's often much harder just because mm -hmm. there is no consistent data set from private equity managers reported to their investors on these ESG or sustainability metrics. That's something we're working on. Um, we have issued a guide to private equity managers on ESG integration and how they should embed ESG within their firm, giving them I mean, best practices from the managers in our portfolio that we deem particularly interesting for them. But from there to say, we will soon have a consistent set of ESG KPIs that all the private equity managers will report on. That's still very much, um, I mean, yeah, a, a long-term project that will not happen in the next two, three years. And that makes it also a bit harder to probably quantify the work that private equity managers are doing on ESG, but I don't want to minimize it. It's just mm -hmm. harder to get your arms around it because of the lack of data. Mm -hmm. 
Tico, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure, Margarita.